Well, thank everyone for coming out here this afternoon. I do appreciate seeing a few other faces. So, um. <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe. Let's uh, open with a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we seek your face this afternoon, and we seek your wisdom, Lord, that you would maybe possibly through me uh, open up your word to us that we might learn of your hand in history and of your providence in our lives and in the lives of our forefathers and what your plan is for our salvation and for the redemption of your people, Israel. Guide us in this study and may your truth and your word be spoken herein. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, this is really kind of the part two of a lesson that I actually gave like a year ago, basically. Uh, the title of my lesson a year ago was even the self-same day. Um, probably not too many of you, some of you probably weren't even here for that or remember it, so we'll do a little bit of review because I kind of wanted to take that concept and, and answer a question that was raised afterwards um, regarding that lesson and uh, just kind of build forward on that concept. So we got to understand the concept of the first lesson before we can, we can go from there. So if you open up to Exodus chapter 12, We'll read together verse 41. Now, Exodus 12, 41, obviously this is a chapter of the, the Exodus, the first Passover is what we would sometimes regard it as. And uh, let's read together God's word. Exodus 12, 41. And it came to pass at the end of the 430 years, even the selfsame day, it came to pass that all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. Amen. And... I was doing a study, and I'd read that verse kind of singularly like that. And, you know, even though I've read it many times before, it really something jumped out at me in that phrase, even the self-same day. And the uh, indication of that is actually then that it was 430 years to the exact day that they came out of Egypt. And so that struck me to say, because we all know they came out of Egypt on Passover day, and so whatever date, whatever event started that countdown to the Exodus was also on Passover day. Okay? So even though we would say that you know, the Exodus, we might regard it as the first Passover, there's actually something that happened 430 years ago that was on Passover day. Now to just make a quick... Um, answer to that, what was that event, you know, we might think, oh, well, that was just them coming into Egypt. But Paul uh, clears that up for us quite well in Galatians 3, verse 17. He says this, And this I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law, which was 430 years after, cannot disannul that it should make the promise of none effect. Amen. So what we learn from that is that the Israelites were not actually in Egypt itself for 430 years. That was not the length of the captivity. The 430 years begins, as he says now, and this I say that the covenant, the covenant which was confirmed by God in Christ, the law, which was 430 years after, cannot disannul. So Paul tells us clearly that it's 430 years from the covenant with Abraham to the Exodus. So what that shows us is then that the covenant that God made with Abraham 
was formed, going back to what it said, even the selfsame day in Exodus, took place on Passover day. That was the day that God made the, covenant, the Abrahamic covenant with Abraham. You follow that? Uh, that was Galatians 3:17. Yes. Um, now there was, you know, there's a little bit of question. Would you look at that as like Genesis 15 or Genesis 17? Um, and we'll, we'll get into that. But uh, just to kind of give a, a little bit of like a, you know, because it is so common to consider that the ex, that the children of Israel were physically in Egypt for the 430 years. Look at uh, Numbers 26:59. I just want to just kind of give you a little bit of a bearing this because there's a this is a genealogy of Moses and it tells us a little detail that it's it's very interesting if you look at this verse it tells us something about who Moses is and how far he is removed from Levi as his uh, forefather. So Numbers 26:59 says, and the name of Amram's wife was Jochebed, the daughter of Levi, whom her mother bare to Levi in Egypt. And she bare him unto Amram, Moses and Aaron, or Aaron and Moses and Miriam, their sister. So Moses and Aaron are grandsons to Levi. Okay? So it's really, like, you could do the math, basically... Jochebed would have had to have been 250 years old when she has you know, Moses in order for them to be in Egypt for 430 years. You know, it's considered a great miracle that Sarah had Isaac at 90 years old, so 250 years is just an impossibility. Okay. Um, also, I mean, it's not just Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Uh, Dathan, Abiram, famous names around the Exodus, Korah, the guy, Matcher, who's the son of Manasseh, who's mentioned in, around the Exodus story. Uh, there's Jer, who's the grandson of Hezron, who's the son of Perez or Zerah. Um, Hur, who is like you know, Moses' helper. Elisheba and Naashan. All of these people are names we know around the Exodus, and every one of them is either a grandchild or a great-grandchild of one of of someone who's alive when they come into Egypt, okay? So all that together really points us that, you might say that generationally and mathematically, it's impossible that the Israelites were physically in Egypt for the full 430 years. A little bit to maybe explain the, the language in Exodus 1241, something that I've discovered since then is with the, and we'll talk about this and I want to do a third part to this lesson um, in part three, but with the fall of the 16th dynasty in Egypt and the rise of the 18th dynasty, that was a really powerful dynasty. And we see that they actually, from the pharaohs of Egypt, subjugated quite a bit of the land of Canaan. So at the time of, like, Thutmoses III, um, they had subjugated, there's like a battle of Megiddo, that, and they, a lot of the Canaanite kings were actually paying, you know, tribute to the Egyptians. So it's somewhat correct for Moses to say that, you know, that the children of Israel, and I think that's a national term, it doesn't necessarily say that it's just the, the physical children of Israel, but it's, it's a racial term. It encompasses Isaac and Jacob and their, their time of wandering 
in the wilderness, so to speak. Even though that was Canaan, but at the time of Moses, Egypt has actually subjugated a lot of the land of Canaan. They've grown. They're trying to push all the way to the, to the Euphrates. And so when he says they wandered in Egypt, it's under the realm of the Egyptian empire at the time. Okay. Um, so I specifically see the, the covenant instance that Paul is referring to as being the Genesis 17 covenant. That that, And uh, if you're familiar, you know, you guys are all good feast keepers. You'll probably be familiar with the word moed, which is a Hebrew word that's from whence we get our word feast. Um, so if you look at Genesis chapters 17 and 18, we see that word associated with this day that uh, God has come to Moses and he's made, or not to Moses, but to uh, Abraham and he's made this covenant. So Genesis 17 verses uh, 18 says, uh, I think I got the wrong verse here. Uh, 17.21, sorry. Okay. But my covenant will I establish with Isaac, which Sarah shall bear unto thee at this set time in the next year. Now that word set time is the word that we are also often see translated as feast. It's used very often in relation to Passover. It's not a set, it's a set time in the sense that God has appointed that day to be the day of the feast. And so God's saying, he comes to Abraham, I believe it's, it's literally Passover day, and he says, at this appointed time, which is an appointed time because it's a feast day, next year, at this same appointed time, is when Isaac will be born. Okay. And then uh, he uses the same word in chapters 18, verse 14. Says, is anything too hard for the Lord at the time appointed? Again, the time appointed, appointed time, the same word, a feast. At the feast time, I will return unto thee according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. Interesting, another thing that I've found out since last year, the word uh, life and time of life there, according to or about the time of life, the word life there is literally spring. It means the, the greening up and the bearing forth and the flowing of water and there's actually some translations here that say spring. So in, in the springtime, I'll return to you at the time appointed, at the appointed time, in the spring of next year, and you will have a son. So we see that, so the 430 years, I believe, really begins right there with the covenant to Abraham. And it was, you know, God formed that covenant on Passover, and so, you know, some conclusions that we can reach from that are that, you know, from the beginning, God intended us to, to be feast keepers. He intended for these times to be there for us to serve him. And he's continued to do things throughout redemptive history on those days. Amen. You'll see that uh, same word again in when Isaac's born in Genesis 21, verse 2. Sarah conceived and bare Abraham a son in his old age at the set time. Again, that's the appointed time. At the feast is how that could literally be translated, which God had spoken to him. And, oh, and in, uh, you can kind of look at the timeline 
of Genesis 17 and 18, and it's undeniable that those two chapters happen very, very close together. Um, because, obviously, Sarah is, is barren, then destruction happens on Sodom, which likely you know, affects the area in which Abraham's living. He's got, you know, and it says he, he packs up his stuff and moves. It doesn't really explain why, but you know, it's, I think that's pretty tangible that uh, it's the whole region there. And he moves north, and he has that interaction with Abimelech, and then uh, you know, God dries up all the wombs in Abimelech's household, and then you know, they, they settled the matter with Sarah. Sarah comes back to Abraham, and God opens up all the wombs in uh, the household of Abimelech. And it almost seems like you know, at that same time, so whatever was in the water right there was some good stuff. You know, you could bottle that and sell it. Be, that'd be some super, super stuff right there. But it seems like at that same time is when Sarah becomes pregnant as well. So... You know, for, for that whole sequence of events to happen, you know, Abraham, it's about a 50-mile journey. You know, they take everything with them. You know, it's, so you're migrating herds and flocks about 50 miles up north, settling in. You know, Sarah gets taken in. Um, you know, that gets settled back out. So, I mean, that's pretty much, you know, a three-month window for that to happen. And then Sarah gets pregnant and has a child the next year at the same time. So Genesis 17 and 18 happened very close together. I think it, you know, I've actually read, some people think it's almost like a synoptic account of the same event between those two chapters. Um, you know, because you read just different things, like in one chapter it's Abraham that laughs, and the next, in chapter 18, it's Sarah that laughs. You know, in both chapters, God kind of appears before them. Um, and, and I just want to point out, in, in chapter 18, we really see, I think, some, some Passover themes there. Um, so whether they were the same day, I think that they're certainly like within the same week of the feast. In uh, chapter 18, we see that, you know, in, chapter, in verse 4, what does Abraham do to, to, the, uh, to the guests that he has? He washes their feet. And then in verse 5, he says, you know, hey, we need to bake some, some cakes for these guys. You know, and, you know, the, it's a bread of haste there. She says to knead it, but, you know, it doesn't necessarily call it unleavened bread, but it's, it's made right away. You know, you take the dough, knead it, and bake it, because we've got to prepare a meal right now. And then he takes a young, tender sacrifice, and they eat this meal together, you know, Abraham and these three visitors. So, you know, that's so much the same as what we would see and recognize as a Passover theme, as a Passover meal foot washing, the new sacrifice, the unleavened bread, the bread of haste. So, you know, I think it just continually builds. If you, if you see, there's so many things within those two chapters that really points to that being an event that happened at the Passover. It's, it's a prefiguring of the Exodus and a prefiguring of what was to come in Christ. And then even after, you know, that, that night that of the eight, you know, chapter 18, what happens? You know, it's about the same thing that happened in Egypt. What, you know, God goes forth and he judges Sodom. What happened at the Exodus? God judged the wicked, those who didn't have the, the seal of God, right? So, that's your, that's your review now. <laughs> we'll start on the new lesson. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, yeah. So, 
The question I'd like to, to look at is, in Genesis 15, when God speaks to Abraham in chapter 13, he says to him, your seed will wander for 400 years. Yes. Okay. So the question you might ask is, because Exodus 12 says 430 years, Paul says 430 years, this 400 years that God says, is that just a rounded number? Is it anything specific, or was it just, eh, it'll be about 400 years? And in actuality, even in verse, in Exodus 12:41, we somewhat see a similarity to, or an echo of that 400 years. So the text, it uses the word years twice in, in Hebrew there. And so it reads like, um, from the 30 years and the 400 years, even the selfsame day, they came out from the land of Egypt. So it's almost like it's broken into two periods within the text of Exodus 12, 41 there. And when I first saw that, I did think that that was pretty notable. I don't think I can quite build as much of a case on that, because that's actually, it's not the only place where you'd see that. There's a lot of times where you'll have the, the ten digits of an age followed by year, and then the hundred digits followed by year. But it seems to echo it. Um, so I want to want to ask, yeah, read. Yeah. Exodus twelve forty one. Yeah. Yeah. Four hundred and thirty years. So the in the Hebrew text, the word years is used twice. So it's thirty years and four hundred years. That's in uh, Genesis twelve. That's where you're, yeah. 12, 13. God says to Abraham, your seed, in specific, your seed will wander 400 years in a land not their own. And of course, we would understand that to be both the land of Canaan, because they haven't taken possession of it, and the land of Egypt while they're there. Okay. So, you know, we could look forward. We've already talked about, you know, Genesis 19 covers the destruction of Sodom. You have a little bit about Ishmael um, in chapter 21 there. Um, and then the next chapter we'd be looking at is chapter 22. We could look forward to uh, chapter 23, but it says, And Sarah was 107 and 20 years, right at the beginning there. So essentially, because she had Isaac at the age of 90, if she's 127, we know that's 37 years. So for, I want to look for an event that we could possibly be at that 30-year mark. Okay. So obviously it's got to be before chapter 23. So that would leave, leave us only chapter 22. So let's, let's take a minute and look through chapter 22 and just get into this story and see what, uh, what we can draw from it. Um, possibly if we might get a better idea how, you know, how far this is down the road, because it, it, the text does not tell us that. Okay. So in Genesis chapter 22, it says, And it came to pass that after these things God tempted Abraham and said unto him, Abraham, and he said, Behold, here am I. So this tempting of Abraham, you know, I think that that's, it's a test. It's, he wants to prove out the faith of Abraham. He's going to test his, his faith and, you know, his commitment and his obedience to God in this. And 
you know, for that test, I think that we'll see that, you know, Abraham, he gains reward. Says to, says to him, and he said, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah. You know, if he hadn't said that part about, you know, thine only son whom thou lovest, you know, he might have just gone, Hey, Ishmael, come on, let's go. Right? <laughs> but uh, he doesn't. He specifically says, you know, thy only son whom thou lovest, son of thine old age. He says, And take him to the land of Moriah, and offer him there a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I shall tell thee of. And he, you know, he asked him to offer him up as a burnt offering. And do you know what a burnt offering is? A burnt offering is an offering made by fire, and it's, it's to be completely consumed yeah. by fire. All the flesh should be burnt. Okay? And, you know, I'm get you know, because it's an outdoor thing, I'm, you know, the bones are probably left, and they're, and, but, uh, and we could read about that in Leviticus 1. Leviticus 1 and uh, it'd be verse 9 and, and also verse 13. But it says, uh, But his inwards and his legs shall he wash in water, and the priest shall burn on all, all on the altar to be a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire of a sweet savor unto the Lord. And then verse 13, But he shall wash his inwards and his legs with water, and the priest shall bring it all and burn it upon the altar it is a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire, a sweet savor unto the Lord. So, in a burnt offering, it's the, the sacrifice is, is to be wholly burnt up and consumed. The, uh, and to think also now, you know, he asked him to come in to bring him into the land of Moriah. And the land of Moriah is kind of a region of, of mountains. The uh, Jewish tradition would say that the place where Abraham went to and he, where he, this, the sacrifice of Isaac takes place was where the temple would be built eventually. And, you know, that's a logical thing if you're a, a Jew because you see that, that you see the temple as, as the, the place of the ultimate, you know, sac, where all the sacrifices come. As Christians, I think that we should see that place actually as the same place where Christ was crucified. Um, I've done a lesson on that, but I, you know, I think, and I think I can prove that out to you if, if, you, if you want to talk about that later. You know, it's kind of a long lesson, but I, I really believe that it, you know, when Abraham says later, you know, this is the place where it shall be provided, that that's a, a picture that says that this is the same place where the sacrifice of Christ, the ultimate sure. sacrifice, will take place. Um, and then, so, in the verse 3 here, it says, And Abraham rose up early in the morning and saddled his ass. He took two of his young men with him, and Isaac his son, and he claved the wood for the burnt offering. Yeah. See, you know, my, my thoughts are that, you know, Abraham gets up, he gets the, this donkey ready, and... He starts splitting wood, you know, chopping wood. He's got to chop the ends of the wood, and he's got to split it. And uh, he's thinking through this, and he's wrestling in his mind, and he's like, on one hand, God says that all my descendants are going to come through Isaac. And, 
But now he's asking me, on this other hand, to, to sacrifice him, to, to take him up, kill him, and offer him up as a burnt offering so that there's nothing left. Yeah, and he's going through this, and you know, as he's splitting wood, and he's like, the only way that this, both can, you know, God can't lie. And so he says, he reaches the conclusion that, well, I'm going to go through with this, and the only way that this can all work out is if God resurrects him from the dead. And that's what, you know, and I'm not hypothesizing that. That's because we have, you know, very different from a Jewish tradition. We have a, a Holy Spirit-inspired commentary on these events in the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews 11, you can read that. And that's why we call this story, as Christians, different than what the Jews would. They call this story the binding of Isaac. Because to them, that's all that happened. But in, in Hebrews 11, which, why don't we just turn there, we'll read that, because it is, it is important. In Hebrews chapter 11, it gives us a different perspective. You know, and this is, it's, remember, you know, that Paul wrote this by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he says, uh, in verses uh, 17 and 19. Yes. By faith, Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac. And he that had received the promise offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called, accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. Amen. And so we need to understand that God sees into Abraham's heart. And as Abraham went through this, God saw that Abraham was faithful. He went all the way through in his mind. God knows that he literally and recognizes in Abraham that he offered up his son. He went through with it in God's perspective. God credits this to Abraham that he did that. He speaks of it here as having happened. So that's why this story from a Christian perspective, is called the sacrifice of Isaac. Because God seeth the heart and intentions of man, and he credits this to Abraham. Abraham did that. He was faithful all the way to giving up his only begotten son. So that's the perspective that Abraham thinks, well, I'm going to go through with this, but God will raise Isaac up from the dead. But he's got to split up this wood that is going to be the, the wood upon which his son's going to be burnt as an offering. And you know, it's common we see, you know, like a, a painting of like Abraham and Isaac journeying together. And, uh, you know, Isaac will be carrying a little bundle of wood on his back, right? So I asked, asked brother Dave here to... Uh, be an expert witness here. So, he, uh, Dave used to work at a place where they cremated people, a crematory. Not, not where they milk, you know, make stuff out of, out of cream, but a crematory, right? <laughs> so, um, how much wood, like, I put these two bundles together of wood here. I mean, if you're going to really offer a sacrifice, I mean, which one of these bundles do you think we're, we're going to need? Yeah. I mean, you're going to need 
a lot of wood, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it does, you know, later on we'll read, you know, he carried, he could put all the wood on this ass at the time, right? So, you know, it wasn't a huge, huge pile, but, you know, it was portable enough, and, you know, maybe they gathered some more stuff when they got there, but, you know, he definitely needed a pretty good amount of wood, right? It wasn't, you know, so I got, like, this is kind of, you know, if you see a picture, you'll see something about like this, right? You know, that's about what you see, you know, if you see a picture of this, you know, just a little kind of bundle of, of twigs, right? But, so you're saying, Dave, that we need, we need the big bundle, right? We need to supersize that one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So as we carry on in the story, it says um, in verse 4 now, Then on the third day Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. I want to talk about, you know, what Abraham saw in this whole sequence here, but... You know, for, for just now, you know, it's, it's like he's seeing the place, and it's still a long ways out there. But, uh, so then Abraham says unto the young men, you know, he took, he's got two young men with him. Now let's talk about these young men here. Because uh, the word young man there is translated from a Hebrew word, and it's nahar, okay? And uh, this word nahar, we need to, you know, we could look at a couple instances of where it's used. Um, it's actually used just pre in the previous chapter. It's used to talk about Ishmael at that time. Now, at the time that, that chapter is taking place, and it's talking about Ishmael, he's probably 18 to 20 years old is the age of Ishmael because you know, he was born about 15 years before Isaac. That instance happens when Isaac's weaned. A lot of people figure that he was about uh, five years old when he was weaned, so that would put Ishmael at 20 in uh, Genesis chapter 20 there when that word is used to describe Ishmael. A couple other instances where this word is used, Nahar, is uh, in the life of Abraham when he uh, goes to take his uh, brother-in-law Lot back. Um, you know, he takes 318 servants with him that are armed, his trained servants. And at the end of the chapter he says, I'm not going to take anything myself from the spoil, but the young men who came with me, the Nahar, that Hebrew word, you know, they'll take their portion. Okay? So, you know, how old do you think those guys were? You know, they're, I'm thinking just young men, like, not, they're not teenagers, they're not little boys, they're, you know, men in the flower of their prime of their life. Right? So, then a, another instance within Genesis is, uh, let's turn, turn and look at this one in Genesis chapter... Uh, 24. No, be further than that. Hold on. It's 40. I just kind of lost my place here. 41. Genesis 41, sorry. Forty-one in verse uh, twelve. Okay, so it's talking about Joseph, and this is the uh, servant of Pharaoh, the one who who made it out alive. There, and he says, uh, "And there was with us a young man, and it's that same word, Nahar, a young man, an Hebrew servant, to the captain of the guard. And 
We told him, and he interpreted to us our dreams, each man according to his dream he did interpret. So, that, you know, that guy's using this word in a hard to describe Joseph. If we uh, look later in this text, it tells us just how old Joseph is in verse 46. So then Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. So, you know, this word Nahar can clearly, you know, reference a 30-year-old guy, okay? So I was, I was thinking if I'd had a couple volunteers that, I was hoping to have a couple of young, you know, younger guys here about 30, but would anybody kind of volunteer to come up here? Some of the halfway younger guy? Yeah. Jeff or Dave? David, come on up here, David. Yeah, there you go. You can pretend to be our 30 year olds here. <laughs> All right. So, and then, uh, you like that one? Yeah. All right. So, oh, and we, we need our lad, too, because we got here in uh, Genesis. And five. Yeah, that's heads there. Now, you know, I think, come on up here, Dustin, you too, bud. So, in the text here, it says in, in verse 6, And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac, his son. He took the fire in his hand and the knife, and they went both of them together. And that was previously, And Abraham said unto the young men, the Nahar that are with him, Abide here with the ass, and I and the lad, here's our lad, we're going to go up, and we'll come back and return unto you. So Abraham says to the young men, we're going to leave, we're going to put this wood on, on Isaac, and he's going to carry it. You feel like you could carry that up a mountainside? No? All right. Now, and we also already concluded that this isn't enough wood. This can't really represent what was needed. It is pretty heavy, but so we actually need you to carry this, Dustin. <laughs> Can you pick that up? Can you move it? So we've got a little bit of a disconnect problem here. If, if Isaac was just a lad, could he really carry this wood this up the mountainside? I mean, honestly, Dustin, I mean, could you carry that up a mountainside? You think you could? Okay. But are we going to get a burnt offering out of that? I don't know. I really don't think so. So, but the text says that Isaac, the lad, carried the wood up the hillside. And, you know, in that, what do we see? We see a picture of Christ, ultimately, right? Because he carries the cross up the hillside. Dave, can you pick that up and carry it? Yeah, I can pick it up. Yeah. Put it on your shoulder. Yeah. Put, put it around your back. It won't go. It won't go. <laughs> yeah, that's. Oh, yeah, that's going to be tough. Yeah. That's going to be tough. Black around that stuff. Yeah. Well, that's hedge, too. So you can see the picture of Isaac. And he's carrying this load up the hill. And it's the same wood that he's going to get sacrificed on. 
but he's asked to carry it. Now, in the Hebrew text there, I know that we have the word lad as what's described of Isaac. But, yeah, just sit down. Thank you. But in the Hebrew text here, it's the same word used twice in the same verse as young man and lad. They're both translated from the same Hebrew word, nahar. So, you know, you, we all said that it was, it was very reasonable to see the two servants. You know, they're essentially like bodyguards, right? That come with Abraham. It's fine to see them as young men in their 30s. So why do we then take that same Hebrew word and translate it lad when it's talking about Isaac? It's the exact same word. And we see that Isaac couldn't have been a little... How old are you, Dustin? You're 12? Isaac couldn't have been 12 and expected to carry that pile of wood up the hillside. I mean, they weren't even there yet. He says that the place was far off when they separated. Okay. So, let me ask you a question. You know, because we all see in this story a foreshadowing of Christ and of the cross. How old was Jesus Christ at the crucifixion? 33? You know, the only like reference we have to his age was at the beginning, and he says it says in Luke he was about thirty. So how old is it proper to see Isaac? Same age. And I'm not, I'm certainly not alone in saying this. I think some of you may be familiar with this before, um, but like Josephus considered that uh, Isaac was twenty-five. Um, the Jewish tradition. Something that interesting happens here in, the, in verse uh, 19. It says, So Abraham returned unto his young men, and they rose up and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. So it just says that Abraham himself returned to the young men. It doesn't say anything about Isaac there. Even though previously the text is very careful to tell us at the end of verse 6. He says, And they went both of them together. And then at the end of verse 8, he says, and they went both of them together. But at the end of verse 19, it only says Abraham. So it's taken, therefore, that Isaac didn't actually return right with Abraham. Maybe he just wanted to stay there and contemplate what just happened, you know, that he almost got sacrificed and that God provided the substitute in his place. I don't know. But he didn't return. And so Jewish tradition, in the next chapter, we see, you know, Sarah dies. And so they've got this tradition that Isaac was actually 37 at this time and that she sees Abraham returning and Isaac's not with him and she dies of a broken heart. You know, but that's, that's the tradition. But I'm just showing, you know, I want to say that just to show you that, you know, there's a lot of, you know, it's very valid to see Isaac as a young man in the flower of his manhood, okay? That he really... You know, it doesn't need to be seen as just a young boy. Okay. 
Well, I see Genesis 17 and 18 as like pretty much, you know, a week, you know, within a week, possibly even like the same day. Genesis 17 is, 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 the, is a is circumcision the, covenant. covenant. Yeah. And then one year later, Isaac born. Yeah. And yeah. And 18 prophesies also Isaac being born at the set time in the next year. So the particular, would you see Isaac 29 or 30? Probably 29, I guess, yeah. 30, if you kind of think about, you know, his life beginning from conception. Okay. You know, if, if that's fair to say. He's, yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but it's, it's 30 years into the future. You know, Isaac possibly at 29. You know, and it's not to say that, you know, he's the exact same age as Christ, but it's just that it's a very, you know, it is almost an exacting parallel. You know, and it's not that we, you know, see that Abraham did something different in sacrificing, you know, in a sense, a, a boy. You know, and here's Christ as a as a man. You know, that it's, it's the same thing. Okay. And, you know, and so that's the question. You know, are we answering that question? Is and you know, with what we see there, that you know, Abra or Isaac didn't return with Abraham. And then the next time that we hear something about uh, Isaac is in Genesis 24, verse 62. So in 24, verse 62, it says, And Isaac came by, by the way of the well Leheroi, for he dwelt in the south country. And I think that's important because, well, Isaac does not live within his father's household now. Where it seems like in Genesis 22, he's there in his father's household. He doesn't return from that, from the sacrifice of Isaac event with Abraham and the next time we run into him, he lives in his, you know, he lives in a different place. And so, to answer the question of, does the 400 years refer to a specific event where God said, your seed will wander 400 years, I think that we have the answer. Because from the time of the sacrifice of Isaac, Isaac leaves his father's household, and that begins the wandering of Abraham's seed, his descendants where the 430 years included part of the life of Abraham. Yeah. So that's the, that's the difference. So it's not a rounding of the numbers. It's, it's, it is detailed. It, it tells us a very you know, firm point in history. Let's just continue going through the story, though. Um, so in verse 7, you think Isaac asked the question that it's like believers are going to ask the same question for the next 2,000 years until Christ comes. Then Isaac spake unto Abraham his father and said, My father, and he said, Here am I, and my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And I think that speaks of what believers would be asking. You know, where is the Messiah? When will this sacrifice come? And you know, Abraham in his, in his faithfulness and his foresight he says, my son, God will provide for himself the lamb. Amen. And he's speaking of, you know, ultimately of Christ, that God will provide the, the lamb of God for our sacrifice, for our sins. 
Then they came to the place which God had told him of, and Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. And the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, Here am I. And he said, Lo, lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. And I think that, you know, people ask the question, you know, was it, was it fair for God to ask this of Abraham, to sacrifice his only son? Or was it, was it just? And, you know, honestly, I think that it was the most fair thing that God could ask of him. It's completely justified. Why? Because what is God's eternal plan for Abraham and Isaac and all their descendants? His plan is that he is going to sacrifice his only begotten son, whom he loves, for them. And so, God's testing Abraham. He says, I want to know. I'm going to give up my greatest possession for you. Will you do the same thing for me? Are you willing to make that commitment for me? Verse 13, And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his thorns. And Abraham looked, went and took the ram and offered him up for burnt offering in the stead of his son. Now can you imagine the relief and the joy of Abraham at that point? Amen. Right? You know, here he was just tearing his soul out at what God has asked him to do. And now the angel says, don't do it, and looks behind him. And here's this ram that God has provided. And, you know, it's a, it's a ram, and he's got, his horns are caught in a thicket of thorns. And what's that a picture of? It's the same as, you know, Christ with the, the crown of thorns. And it's like the same thorns in the same place. And Abraham just overjoyed, I imagine, you know, that clearly he doesn't have to go through with the sacrifice of his son, and God's provided something different. You know, and it's that that I think Christ speaks of in John chapter 8. John 8 and verse 56. It says, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. You know, and so from that we have to understand that Abraham... You know, had a foreshadowing, or you know, physically in a way saw Christ's day. He physically, you know, saw and understood what would happen in the future. He saw the day of, of Christ and His sacrifice. He saw Calvary for in the foreshadowing of what happened there. And you know, I, I don't think that it could be denied that this is the event in which Abraham saw the day of the Lord. Right. Just giddy with joy. He says, he rejoiced to see my day. He rejoiced to see the, the redemption that would come to him and to his descendants. In verse uh, 14 then. I lost my place. 
And Abraham called the name of the place Jehovah-Jireh, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. And the word seen is like, in a way that, you know, God sees a need and then he provides it. That's what Jehovah-Jireh, it's like the same word. Um, also in verse 8, the word that we have in verse 14, seen, the same word provided in verse 8. God sees the need and then provides for it. And the angel of the Lord called unto Abraham out of heaven the second time and said, By myself I have sworn, saith the Lord, for because thou hast done this thing and hast not withheld thy son, thine only son. Uh, the Genesis like 15 where they, he splits these animals in half and they walk through the halves. Or, you know, God walks through the halves. That's, that's a really strange thing to us. But you can actually go back in uh, some, like, cuneiform tablets of the kings of Mesopotamia and early Assyria and Babylon. And that was, that was a real custom in their day, that uh, they'd split these animals in half, and men would make a covenant together, and they would walk through this bloody mess, essentially. And the, the statement of that would be, you know, if I break my word, if I break my covenant with you, then so be it to me as it is to these animals. Let me be you know, cut asunder and you know, spilled out, and my life poured out. And so that's the interesting thing, you know, because Abraham isn't asked to walk through those. God walks through it himself. You know, God in the smoking furnace you know, does that himself. And so he's saying, you know, Abraham, this is completely on me to, to provide this for you. And there's a, another interesting kind of a treaty or covenant that was partaken of in, the, in those times, and it was, that's kind of what they call a, like a land grant treaty or a, you know, a vassal treaty is kind of what that, where you're walking through the pieces, but something else called a, a parity treaty, and it was usually between kings, and it, it would come when they came together to form an alliance, and it wasn't so much about sacrifices, really about the oath that they would swear. And, you know, because you have different kingdoms and they'd have different gods, you know, they serve, you know, Moloch and whatever, you know, they'd have this, in these, in these tablets, they have this long list of, you know, you swear by the name of blah, 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 God, and, you know, and then, you know, this God, and, because they'd have to swear by each other's gods in order for the, you know, the oath to be. And so God's taking that, you know, that pattern, and he says... You know, I'm going to swear by myself because I'm the God of gods, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And, but the interesting thing about the, that parity treaty is that it's, they're, they're tit-for-tat covenants. It's like what the one party brings, the other party's going to bring. What, you know, your enemies are now my enemies, your family is my family, your friends are my friends. You know, if, if you need help, I'll be there. If I need help, you have to be there. That's how that, that idea works. And I think that it's really understanding that covenant, that, that oath that God made to Abraham, that in which Abraham knows and sees what God is promising within that oath. You know, he's saying to Abraham, because you did not withhold your son, your dearly beloved only son, the son of promise, as a sacrifice for me, I'm going to do the same thing for you. 
I'm going to sacrifice my son, my dearly beloved son, in the flower of his manhood, without spot and blemish, I'm going to give him for you and for your descendants. And that's, that's the blessing, I think, that we see in verse 15. Blessing, I will bless thee. That's, you know, so much more than just land. It's, it's the covenantal view that, you know, from the beginning, God chose out Abraham. He elected him and his descendants for eternal life, for the inheritors of not just the kingdom here on earth, but the heavenly kingdom, kingdom that is to come. You know, and then... In verse, it says, uh, his enemy, that in thy seed shall possess the gates of his enemies. You know, if we think about Abraham, he didn't really have, like, enemies in a way. You know, he seemed to really, man, he was a people person. You know, he was just really good. You know, he was able to negotiate through a lot of hazards in Egypt and uh, the Philistines. And, you know, he wasn't really plagued by people that, that hated him and wanted to go to war with him. You know, it's the same thing in Israel, you know, is that, so are those the enemies that, you know, this verse is speaking of? You know, did, did Christ come to set Israel free from Rome? You know, was it, are the, the gates of the enemies that he's speaking of, is that, you know, the gates of Assyria or the gates of Babylon? No, it's, it's something deeper than that. You know, in Luke 1, uh, 70 to 75, you know, the, the benediction of Zachariah. You know, we sing it, but uh, it's just, uh, that's one of the, I think, the greatest passages in Scripture because it really connects the Hebrew Scriptures to the Greek Scriptures. It's, it's this bridge that, you know, links the covenant of Abraham to the coming of Christ. And, you know, he says, uh, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness, righteousness all the days of our life. And, you know, but that, the oath which he swore to Abraham, that's, that's right here. And, you know, in our, we don't maybe necessarily see that that's a prophecy of Christ in the wording. We see it in the, in the big picture of, you know, the story of Isaac and the sacrifice but we need to see it in the words there, too, that thy seed shall possess the gates of his enemies. Back in Galatians, we read verse 17, 317. What's he saying? Verse 316. What's Paul say? He says, and not thy seed. He saith not, and thy seeds as of many, but thy seed, which is one, which is Christ. So what is God saying to Abraham here? Thy seed which is one, which is Christ, shall possess the gates of his enemies. We just had, you know, Seth preached a lesson, and what was it about? How Christ went down to hell, and he led captivity captive. He brought gifts unto men. Those are the gates of our enemies that we now possess. You know, it echoes to, to Matthew verse, or chapter 16, when you know, he asked Peter, Who say ye that I am? Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Christ says to Peter, Thou art a stone, Petros, but upon this bedrock, this Petra, this truth upon Jesus Christ, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. 
And so we see within the Abrahamic covenant this true gift of Jesus Christ and the redemption and the overcoming of the two greatest enemies that Abraham and all of his descendants have faced. The enemies of sin and death. From the beginning, from Adam, from the fall, those have been what we've been plagued with. Sin and death. But Christ came to redeem us from sin and gave us eternal life. Yes, the words of Corinthians chapter 15. O death, where is thy sting? Amen. We'll conclude with that. Martin? Yes, blessing?